0: You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Autumn on the Air. In today's episode, we're delving into a report from the United States Patent and Trademark Office's Office of the Chief Economist that sheds light on the pivotal role played by small companies and universities in driving COVID-19 diagnostic inventions. Joining us today are two experts, Andrew Toole and Nicholas Pirallero, who have contributed significantly to this research. Welcome, Andy and Nick. I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here, Lisa. Lisa.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited to have you both here. And I'm very interested in talking about your report, Diagnosing COVID-19, a Perspective from U.S. Patenting Activity. And let's go ahead and jump in and talk right away about that report. So what sparked the decision to shine a spotlight on small companies and
0: universities in your report? Well, um, if if you don't mind, Nick, I'll I'll take this one to start off. Uh, I'm just super excited to be able to talk to your audience today about this report. We've actually been doing a lot of um, work on COVID-19 up to this point. And, uh, you know, to be quite direct to the answer to your question is that we didn't know in advance that small companies and universities were going to play such an outsized role Um, But the origin of the report, I think, is very relevant for universities, and that is um, the World Trade Organization um, adopted a a waiver of COVID-19-related vaccine patents uh, back in June of 2022. And since, of course, it was related to trying to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, and and everybody, of course, at that time was trying to figure out what do we do to stop this – But subsequently, there was a suggestion to expand that waiver beyond the vaccines to therapeutics and diagnostics. And what that did is it opened up this information vacuum because nobody really knew what is the what does that mean? Um, How much patenting is really happening and who's doing it in this area? So that was one of our big um, impetus behind it was to add some information to that policy to help support that policy decision, which will be made eventually here, um, about what to do. So uh, we found just basically that that, the universities and small companies just really emerged as leaders in terms of patenting in COVID-19 diagnostics.
1: Wow, that's incredible. And how long have you been working on this report?
0: Well, the report itself... um, it happened. So, uh, to back up one second, the world, I mean, the, uh, in, the US Trade Representative requested a study from the International Trade Commission. Um, some of these institutions may be familiar to the audience. And they were really scrambling to try and figure out what was going on. So, that really was the trigger. So, we started on this, I don't know, probably in April, March or April of uh, 2023. And uh, what year is it? And um, we ended up working really fast. We had a nice, t- so Nick here was a tremendous uh, part of our team, really helped to organize everybody. Uh, we had patent examiners, so we had really technically deep, knowledgeable people involved. We have ourselves, the economists, who are really more on the data side and uh, actually, I have to give, uh, again, a lot of credit to Nick, who was able to orchestrate this group within the PTO and also um, collaborate and engage with the, the International Trade Commission on it as well. So I guess we started like in April or May, um, probably April of 2023.
1: Wow, you guys did work fast because we're talking it's middle of January 2024. So I'm sure it was a tremendous amount of data that you both had to go through and you know, given all this work that you did and how quickly you went through it, I'm curious, um, given the leadership by small companies and universities, are there any examples of some innovative COVID-19 diagnostic inventions from these smaller organizations and universities that stood out while you were doing your research?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Lisa. I think that's a really, really, really good question. Um, So what we did is we took took a look at, you know, the top 20 or so Uh, patent applicants in this particular area. That's COVID-19 diagnostics. And I think if you look at the top five, the top company was a small company called Detect Incorporated. You had another company, Pathogen DX, another small company, the University of Utah uh, Research Foundation was also there. And he said, okay, well, let's kind of pull back these companies and try to figure out what was going on, what is currently going on. And can we try to figure out this sort of path from like invention to patent application to commercialization and see how that might be different? Um, across them. And, you know, so one of those companies, Detect Incorporated, it started, I think, in like March 2020, right? So that's right when COVID 19, we said, okay, March, April, at least in the United States, we became really aware of that. Uh, it was a venture backed company. And what happened was they were able to get what's called an FDA emergency use authorization, right? That's really a mouthful, but it's sort of this, uh, you know, it was a pandemic. We have this sort of fast track authorization for diagnostics. And eventually they had to sort of revoke that. So the tech revoked it, um, I think, you know, last year, early last year. And it's hard to say exactly why. It didn't say why they had it revoked in their letter to the FDA, but they did have some um, problems with, specific lots of their tests the prior year, having too many false negatives and things. So it's hard to say exactly what happened there. But then, you know, that's that's one small company maybe had um, a little bit of a difficulty. But then this other company, Pathogen DX, they have a current EUA, that's Emergency Use Authorization, um, another small company, and they were able to sort of take their you know, diagnostic that was meant for like fungus and bacteria and, you know, flip that to COVID-19 right at the start of the pandemic with perhaps some help from the government, uh, from the NIH and from uh, NIAID as well. So um, that's that's currently in use. The test is currently commercialized. So it's sort of two different paths um, that kind of illustrate kind of what might be happening in this space.
1: Yeah, really interesting. And the speed at which all this happened was really fascinating, I think, to watch too. And I'm sure you you saw that while well, doing your research. So I'm curious, could you tell me how these contributions from these various smaller organizations help to enhance the adaptability and diversity present in the COVID-19 diagnostic innovation landscape?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I think those are really, really key words, right? So sort of the adaptability and how sort of flexible we found the innovation ecosystem to be, right? I mean, this is sort of you know we all got hit with this shock, Andy mentioned a shock. Well, this was a really big shock to to the system, right, to the public health system. And when you look at when were these applications filed, I mean, they were filed immediately in March, April, and May, right? So there was like this sort of pent-up or built-up capacity to diagnose COVID-19 in this particular case. We can see that in the data, you know, about 18 months later when applications are published, we see the big spike, right? That's when we saw the most applications published about 18 months after the sort of the pandemic. And I think, you know, because such a large share were small companies, um, you know, nonprofits, universities, you know, basically, what does this allow for? Well, We just saw a couple of cases where, you know, it can be challenging, right, to go from conception to invention to application to commercialization, right? So you want to have a lot of irons in the fire, perhaps, right? So you don't know what's going to happen because things are so rapidly changing. And then also, if you have, you know, a lot of different tasks that might translate into lower prices for consumers, that just allows us to sort of track the pandemic and help with the public health response and also just, you know, us taking tests to figure out if we should go to, to Christmas or, you know, holiday dinner or something like that, right? It's really important to, to have these things available and have them be accurate.
1: So do you have any sense of how many filings there were in the initial part of the pandemic?
0: Yeah, we, one of our key findings shows, um, and I'll just say it right here, that we had a peak in filings uh, that became public in the fourth quarter of 2021, and that because there's an 18 month day uh, period of time between the filing and when it becomes public, that actually means that the companies were really responsive right away. April, May, and June of 2020. So you know we all were sent home, or most of us were sent yeah, home exactly. uh, in March. and suddenly in April we're already getting filings. So there was a big surge. It kind of looked like a wave if you look at the graph. It just rises up and then it starts to taper off um, like a wave shape. Uh, And it's just fascinating how fast the response was.
1: Yeah, I know there were a lot of scientists and various companies that were working 24-7. So it's it's not surprising to me that you saw this this big wave. And I'm curious, you know, do you have some theories about um, the driving forces behind all these filings and the amount of filings? yeah i mean
0: it, it's it 's hard to know for sure, of course we haven 't done a deep dive on all of the drivers behind what we've found um, but it's certainly true that the university system was well poised to um, to respond to the pandemic. Obviously, there were a number of different government um, programs and support for research that came out at that time uh, that helped- you know prop up and propel. Uh, the work, but it's. I think it really has to do with the ability to switch. Uh, one thing that companies aren't necessarily uh, able to do as much is to be as flexible as as academic institutions can be in shifting the focus. Uh, many academic researchers are are very adept at doing that, actually, especially when they have to get funding from agencies like the National Institutes of Health. They're very uh, good at 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 um, Switching between the different focuses, so I I think that a lot of it came from the fact that the university is well poised with the human capital, the the, the smart people, the the, the 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 graduate students, and the funding to really really be responsive and flexible. Uh, and I think that uh, that and the fact that we got this additional funding was probably a a large part of why that was true, that we had this responsiveness by the university system and particularly small companies.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to stay on this concept of government support here for a second, because entities like the NIH um, played a crucial role in COVID-19 diagnostics. So uh, talk to us a little bit more about how this support translated into tangible outcomes and advancements in the field at this time.
0: Sure. I mean, One of the most interesting things about patenting is that you can look at two ways in which the funding from government is really um, fueling the innovation, particularly in the university system. So you can look at um, the assignee, that is to say who owns the patent. And if you only look at the assignee among the the, so we found 824 COVID-19 diagnostic patents. Starting our study in December 1st of 2019 and going through um, the early part of 2023 where we had to cut our data off and just start analyzing it. That's a lot. It it was. About one out of three um, filings related to COVID were actually COVID diagnostic related. So about 33%, which actually I was a little bit surprised um, that it was such a large percentage, but it's reassuring that it was. Um, anyway, if you just look at the assignee, the the ownership, you find that only a small number. Let's see here. It was uh, just a fraction. Seven, it was. Um, I'm looking for my number here. Fifteen out of that 824 were actually assigned to government. So that's a very small fraction. But what we what. What's important to recognize is it's not just the government owning the patent. It's actually more important under Bayh-Dole, which is the 1980 Bayh-Dole Act, which allows universities to get exclusive rights to inventions that are partially funded by government. And what what the university and the filer must do is put a little statement into the into the patent application that says this was partially supported by government funding. Well, what we did is we looked for those particular statements within the application. So it's a natural language processing type search. If you do that, the number jumps from the 15 that I told you to 88. So essentially, yeah, so essentially about 11, 10.7, so rounding off to 11 percent of all of the patenting that we found related to COVID-19 diagnostics uh, came through uh, was supported in part by government funding. And again, I think this goes back to the funding surge where many people would agree that we did put in a fairly substantial amounts of money to try to help offset the, the, the shock of, uh, of COVID-19. But again, about 10.7 or 11% of the total number of filings were showing government support.
1: Oh, that's really amazing. And going back to the total number of diagnostic applications filed, I think that number is really incredible because I'm sure as you both are well aware, diagnostic inventions have some patentability challenges um, in the USPTO with respect to subject matter eligibility. So it seems like people were taking, filers were taking the attitude, you know, what? Well, we'll worry about that later. We're just going to file and probably just deal with that later if and when it comes type of thing. So that's that's really pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. And, and if I can mention additionally, so so Nick here is, um, he heads up our work on artificial intelligence for identifying patents and grouping them and creating studies such as patent landscapes. And um, we... So, there's two approaches. There's the standard approach to figuring out if this patent is part of COVID 19, where you look at the technology field and you do a search, like a query. And then there's the AI approach, where you train a model. And so, we're working on the AI approach more broadly, and we have um, some other stuff we could talk about in that area. Of course, it's not the subject of today's talk. But what I wanted to mention is that, um, and Nick can add to this, I think when we started doing this to try to figure out which patents were actually related to COVID-19 diagnostics as opposed to therapeutics and and vaccines, we had to take a couple of different approaches. And um, the one that I just told you about, the one in which we found 824 patent documents, that was one of our approaches. I don't know, Nick, do you want to just explain for a moment or two kind of what you think about that? Yeah, yeah. yes, we can sort of, you know, dive into the data a little
2: bit i think it's it's actually really really informative once we can kind of zoom back out but you know i think people that are you know doing patent searches or you're trying to understand a technology or you're in a technology transfer office and you want to figure out you know where should we be trying to sort of connect the government and funds or or whatever right so it's it's useful to go into how do you identify the technologies and you know Andy was talking about this sort of broader approach where we just looked inside the entire patent document right so there's a big description of it, there's a precise definition of the claims. Said, okay, well, is this generally related to COVID-19? Right? That's sort of one approach. Then the second approach is said, okay, well, let's be a little bit more specific and let's look at there's a there's a commercial company called Derwent, and they manually create really kind of short descriptions of what inventions actually are in patent applications. So let's just look at you know what Derwent says. Now, between these two approaches, right, from the, the kind of smaller approach, we found, you know, 50% more documents in the broader approach, right? So it was like, I think it was like 824 and the and the broader approach was 1,200 or something like that, right? So there's a big difference in which of these inventions are related to COVID-19. Then we sort of, you know, we, we use classifications in German to find the diagnostics, but you know, it, it's it's really challenging. And each, each time we sort of do this, we sort of figure out a little bit more how to do it, you know, perhaps better the next time. Um, but I think in this broader approach, something like half of them that we said were COVID-19 diagnostics weren't actually COVID-19 diagnostics. They might've said COVID-19 somewhere and maybe it was related peripherally or something like that. But it's something that this was sort of put in there strategically or for for whatever reason. So, um, you know, it's a... It's, uh, it's tough I think to dive into the data and, and identify technologies but some of these details really really do matter when you're trying to understand the broader innovation
0: ecosystem. And and, and let me, I'm sorry but let me just add one more thing if I may. Um you know it's been it getting into the data is a really important part of being able to um describe what we found um and just to just to mention one thing I find pretty funny is that in the broader search that Nick just mentioned, we found a patent application uh, under that was published, lab- the title of which is Board Game Relating to COVID-19 Pandemic. Oh my Pandemic. gosh, really? So it's kind of like, I kind of imagined the game of life, right? But they had a board game with COVID-19 related issues. Maybe it was about, I, I didn't get to see oh the details. Oh my gosh,
1: I'm going to have to look. I'm going to have to look that one up. I mean, it, it's probably a very scary game if you think about it, you know, given all that was going on at that time, yeah. you know? And I mean, what is it you win if you don't have COVID, your diagnostic test comes back negative. You, uh, yeah. We're going to have to look and and find that one, but yeah, it sounds like a tremendous amount of work that, that you guys both did and your team did. And, you know, I think one of the really interesting things about research sometimes is those unexpected surprises that you run across. So, you know, did you have some aha moments or did you find some unexpected trends that emerged during your research? And how do you think these unexpected moments or trends um, might inform the strategies of university tech transfer professionals moving forward?
0: yeah I mean I think there there were a few aha moments the one one of the aha moments was just the discovery that actually universities and small firms were such a big part of the of the equation here. We honestly expected it to be the large companies um, Another thing that struck me and I Nick may have a few things to add because he really was uh, in there uh, deep in the data. But one of the things that struck me was the the Food and Drug Administration on their website lists the COVID-19 at-home tests. So you can actually see the companies, you can see the name of the test and all sorts of information. So if you start with that and you try to go back to the patents, you would think that you would find all of these different patents underlying each of these tests. In fact, that didn't work Hardly at all. And I think Nick may have some war war stories about that. We really, that was a surprise, right? Why can't we find the patenting here? And one explanation could be that the large companies adjusted from their current platforms and they really didn't have to re-protect those platforms. They just sort of tweaked them. Whereas the small companies were really innovating new platforms and new uh, things that did require some patent protection, um, so that, that was a couple of the things that struck struck me.
2: And Nick, tell us your war stories. Oh, the, I mean, yeah, the war stories, war stories. <laughs> well, before we get to that, first, I just want to, you know, really, really emphasize Andy's first point. I mean, I think the, the, the main reason why we're here is to talk about, you know, the small companies, the universities, the nonprofits. So I think 71% of the public filings that we found were you know, paying small and micro entity fees, right? These are the small companies, these are the universities, right? And the overall share is I have 24% here, right? So like you take an average patent application, 24%. So it was like, you know, huge, right? And if you look at the ones that Andy was talking about the government interest, the ones that had the government interest, 81% right? We're, we're the small companies and the universities and the nonprofits, right? So they were kind of disproportionately receiving the the funding from the government. That's your NIH, you know, RADx, right? That's the Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics, a program that was set up for diagnosing COVID-19, right? So it's it's super interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of trying to figure out, uh, trying to link the diagnostic products to the patented inventions, it's extremely, extremely difficult. I think there's like, 350 tests, right, that have the emergency use authorization, right? These are molecular antigen and the kind of rapid at-home tests. Um, so there are a lot of tests, and that's kind of, you know, reflective of all of the invention that we found here, but very, very few of the the sort of product packaging had any information about, you know, where are the patent applications coming from, where, where are the patented technologies. For whatever reason, um, you know, that's not something that we really dug into or were able to dig into, but I mean, that was that was very surprising. It's just, you know, it's very, very difficult because that's that's really what you want to know, right? You have inventions. Are they patented? But how do they actually show up in the products? And that's sort of a missing link, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And I think it can be very difficult just in under normal circumstances, because I'm a patent attorney to just do that generally. So I can imagine for you guys with all those different tests and you know uh the information you're dealing with especially the way claims are drafted if they're extremely broad trying to make that connection between the product and the claims can be really difficult to try and figure out what application is covering which test. So it's not surprising to me that 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 was challenging for you guys. Um, it's challenging for us as attorneys to do sometimes. So I wanted to ask the two of you, what are the report's findings tell us about how government support and innovation are interconnected, especially in the very important healthcare sector?
0: I think it's an easy answer. They're, they're extraordinarily interconnected Government support is one of the most important sources of fueling healthcare innovation in the United States, even globally. Our National Institutes of Health is the largest funding agency for healthcare research in the world, and um, it goes far beyond our simple report and you know we looked at patent data. With um, assignees being NIH or whatever, and the government interest statements being in there saying that the companies received some support um, from the NIH or other agencies like the DOD, Department of Defense, for instance, was also big. But it's really all that funding that that um, goes into the university system. And in my prior life, when I was a university professor, I wrote a paper and it got published in this Journal called Research Policy, which uh, applied the kind of people care about, um, and it 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 and I don't want to get off the topic, but it does show the importance of NIH-funded basic research as fueling drug innovation in the pharmaceutical industry, and that's just one example. Because here we're talking about diagnostics, which is a separate and fascinating industry beyond the therapeutics. But I, there's just no question, honestly, uh, that how critical government funding and support is for Uh, university-based healthcare innovation, uh, or even small companies in our our economy.
1: Now, as part of your research, did you take a look at all some of the obstacles that smaller groups, whether it was smaller organizations or universities, face while trying to secure their patents for COVID-19 diagnostic innovations?
2: That's also a really good question. I think, you know, it's hard for us to say the the diagnostics companies that we have in this particular data set. So, in COVID 19 diagnostics, but we do have some work that looks at this kind of more broadly. So, patent applications that come from, you know, I keep saying small and micro entity applicants, those are the small companies, universities, um, et cetera, right? So, you know, there, there's some evidence that shows that, hey, well, you know, they may use attorneys that have less experience, so they've filed fewer patent applications in the past for whatever reasons, slightly lower allowance rates overall, And, you know, maybe they these applications require more changes in the process, you know, before they're disposed, eventually granted, perhaps, or they could be abandoned. So there's some evidence there. It's it's sort of, you know, very um, correlational. Right. But then there's also a study by a very recent study by an international team of researchers that really kind of shows that the quality of the attorney matters in sort of getting through this complicated legal process that we call you know, patent examination. Um, and especially in technologies that are rapidly changing, so like COVID-19, I mean it's rapidly changing, and in also areas that are kind of less codified or less less precise. So you know, it's just a little bit of evidence, right, that shows that hey, you know, perhaps financial resources matter or the quality of the attorneys matter. Um, there might be different resources across different entity types, so large companies versus small companies, for example. Um but I think overall, we just kind of need to dig into that a lot more to figure out, you know, what's going on and how can we sort of aid or assist or and sort of improve the experiences of these types of applicants.
1: So are you going to continue on in your research? So will that be something you look ahead to going forward? Or is your, are you done on this moving on to, to other projects?
0: If you're referring to small businesses in general, uh, we're definitely focused on a lot of so. small and micro entities is is a category we we label because they pay discounted fees for their filing and they have to meet certain criteria to be called small and micro, um, as opposed to undiscounted entities. But we are doing a we have a whole research program essentially trying to understand what's happening not only with small and micro entities as. Uh, individual units, but actually the inventors and the women versus men. So what kind of women's participation are we seeing? And one of the facts that actually, uh, on on one of the papers that uh, Nick and I have, it shows that women, first time women inventors are arriving at the PTO in a greater proportion through small and micro entities than they are through the large companies, And, you know, so that just highlights the importance of these small and micro entities for understanding all sorts of things and innovation and new technology um, versus the old Goliath, you know, um, and but also participation and diversity among inventors. Yeah. So we have a lot going on in that area.
1: Absolutely. And are you going to continue on with this COVID nineteen type of uh, aspect of your research, or will that uh, have you done all that you are going to do on that, and you'll just continue on just generally with micro entity and small entity and small organizations?
0: Well, you know, one of the projects we have is not COVID nineteen specific, but talks about economic shocks like the Great Recession and all the uncertainty that was created there, the COVID-19 pandemic, and all the uncertainty that was created in the economy when that happened, and really asks the question, when applicants, universities, small companies, large companies are hit by these waves of uncertainty because of the change in the economic environment, how do they react with their patenting? And so we're, we're pursuing this but we're pursuing it in kind of a broader sense by asking how uncertainty in these circumstances is affecting the choices of applicants rather than just looking at COVID-19.
1: So, Andy and Nick, I'm going to ask you guys to pull out your crystal balls for a second, and I'm going to ask you a really, really broad question. And And my question is, how might the concentration of inventions and in specific technologies impact the competitive landscape within the healthcare industry? And I know that's a super broad question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you don't mind, Nick,
0: I'll, I'll take the first stab, but I think you should have the opportunity to chime in as well if you want. Um, well, first of all, I want to draw a very clear distinction. We have patenting and concentration in patenting, which is a technology concentration. And then we have the healthcare industry, We have patients and doctors and hospitals and nurses and all of these groups. That's a different, that's products and services and people helping people. Those are two separate worlds. Now, they're they're, they're interconnected. They're not separate in in that regard, but they are two conceptually distinct worlds. And so if we get a lot of concentration in the technology side, it doesn't mean that we're going to have like concentration in markets. So it doesn't mean that people are going to be squeezed, let's say, with higher prices or something like that. That We cannot make that connection uh, immediately. But one of the things that I think is interesting about concentration in the technology side, in the patenting side where we are, is that um, people talk about the importance of being able to license different technologies to different entities. And so Um, there's this kind of pejorative phrase called patent thickets that people use to describe areas that have a lot of patenting where it might be difficult to negotiate licenses across multiple patent holders. But what's fascinating here is some earlier work that Nick has done with some co-authors, they've actually come up with a way of measuring this kind of technological Concentration. I don't think the the I don't think the term thickets, which has this pejorative nature,s is, is being used. But um, it, what do you think based on on that, Nick? Do you want to mention that work?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think this is one of the first things that uh, uh, you know. I got my college degree, and I sort of okay. Well, this is the first thing that I looked at, right? Um, And it just looked at kind of the overlap of the claims, right? So we know that, you know, for people that are really, you know, kind of into patents and things, we know that the patent claims, they just, they precisely describe what the invention is. And all that we did is we looked at the overlap of the claims, right? So, okay, well, this invention has 25% overlap with this invention or 50% overlap or something like that. And I think, you know, a broad trend that sort of, you know, popped out there is that we do see increasing overlap over time. Now, that could mean a lot of things, right? It could mean that, you know, technology is getting sort of denser, or maybe technology is getting more complex. I think, you know, we have this understanding, perhaps, that technology is becoming more complex. You think about smartphones or, you know, these complex gadgets that we have in one particular area. A lot of different inventions fit in. But how do the inventions fit in, right? Are they all complementary? Do we have, Substitutable inventions that are patented? Well, substitution that typically means an increase in competition, right? You have ten inventions that all do the same thing that has a particular kind of impact on on, on how things are licensed or how they fit into the products and things. So I think overall that that space is very, very interesting. Um, but in terms of you know COVID nineteen here, you know, I think we sort of just said there's like 350 tests, right? So there's, in some sense, that's concentration, but it's also diversity in products, right? You know, we have all of these different tests, and some of them end up not working very well, but some of them really do work very well, right? So it's sort of a good idea to have all these different tests, different vaccines, different therapeutics. Um, And so I, you know, I see that as sort of a really, really, you know, robust and nice thing about the way that the innovation ecosystem responded, right? I mean, we got hit by the shock and all of these tests and all of these inventions. And uh, I think it's just really, really, really important and really interesting, so.
0: Can I also mention one other thing directly from the report? So in the report, we actually have a figure that identifies the top 10 um, cooperative patent classification subclasses. That's the way the patent office groups technologies and it's quite amazing that we had nearly 50% of our of the patents that we identified for covid-19 were in a class labeled g01n for all of you uh, people who love that but it's actually called analyzing materials by chemical and physical properties and um, that was one of the that was the largest technology class where these COVID-19 diagnostic patents appeared. The second largest class, and so again we have a, a list of 10 of them, and I urge people to go look because it's really fascinating. We also have a couple, I think three we actually have three examples in the report that really describe the kind of interconnectedness of the technologies. So they're not really these separate distinct things, but they are kind of grouped that way. Anyway, the second largest was measuring enzymes, nucleic acids, and microorganisms. So you get to see these very interesting groupings by technology for the overall uh, set of patents that we called COVID-19 diagnostics.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. And so I don't want you guys to put away your crystal balls quite yet because I want to ask you a forward-looking question. And so looking ahead, considering the lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic what collaborative roles do you envision for smaller organizations such as universities? And how might government support play a crucial role in addressing future health
2: crises? So, I mean, I think, you know, I don't do work specifically in in the area. You know, Andy has a much stronger background in sort of the relationship between the government and funding and invention and that kind of thing. But I'll just say, you know, the things that popped out to me, like when I was looking at the companies, right, like uh, Pathogen DX, right. There was this new program by the NIH called RADX, which they were funding, you know, kind of small companies diagnostics for COVID nineteen commercialization. Basically, what it seemed like was the the sort of entire pipeline, right? So. That program, perhaps other new programs that were kind of, you know, just put into place because we didn't know what to do. And it was this, this giant shock. I mean, now is the time to sort of go back and evaluate how well these, these programs performed because, you know, it may not be COVID-19 next time. It could be really anything that happens, right? That sort of shocks the system. And it's a good idea to sort of have a good idea of kind of, uh, what works, what doesn't work, and that kind of thing. So, you know, it probably won't be me to sort of dig into all these nuances. I'm not, you know, a specialist in that area, but I'm interested in kind of learning what others sort of come up with and identifying all these programs that were put into place and how well well they performed.
0: Yeah, so I'd like to add to what Nick has said by just kind of backing up a little bit into the broader picture here. And I had the benefit of working with the chief economist of the um, European Patent Office, the chief economist of the World Intellectual Property Organization, uh, WIPO, and um, an academic researcher, Reinhilde hilde who's at the KU Leuven in Belgium. And uh, we were co-editors of a book entitled Resilience and Ingenuity, Global Innovation Responses to COVID-19, which is free. Um, And I'll tell you about it in in just a second. But if you just go to Google and type in resilience and ingenuity and you press it, you'll find it. It's a free downloadable book. But what's interesting in that book is is we have an overview chapter and we have all of these different perspectives from around the world. And a couple of these contributions really highlight the importance of the collaboration that has to happen between government and organizations um, so, for instance, there's a, tra- a chapter that Rhine Hilde wrote uh, on mRNA, new breakthrough technology, and how universities played such an important role in that particular therapeutic approach to um, COVID-19. And um, the, the overall lesson of that was that when you look across the world, we see the most impact, the most impactful and kind of like bang for the buck Kind of outcomes when the government and the private sector really join hands and work in a collaborative way. So that just the word collaboration can mean many things, but that is uh, in many varieties. There's public-private partnerships and so on. But that that is a great word, and it really does highlight the critical um, a critical aspect of how we need to respond going forward. If there is going to be another pandemic of some kind. The responsiveness that we have as the United States and other countries have is going to depend a lot on this collaboration between, you know, universities, small companies, large companies and the government. Right. We're all in there. We're all in it together.
1: Exactly. And that's one thing COVID-19 showed us. We're all in it together. There was definitely no escaping it. So. But thank you both so much for your time today and your expertise and congratulations on the report. It's really incredible. And I encourage listeners to, to give it a read.
0: Thank you so much, Lisa. It was a lot of fun. And the reports on our website, the USPTO economics, completely free and uh, enjoy, enjoy.
2: Yeah, thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you both. Well, that's it for this episode. A big thanks to our guests, Andy and Nick for sharing valuable insights on COVID 19 diagnostics from the USPTO's report, Diagnosing COVID 19, a perspective from US patenting activity. For more insights, be sure to check out the full report on the USPTO's website, where you can find it in this episode's show notes.
0: Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us.